Demography is not a particularly exciting field of study in many instances. Often it involves exhausting work through birth records, death records, trends, lots of math, etc., etc. Yet demography can also play a significant role in political events. And tragically, as we found out in Buffalo, New York this weekend, can sometimes be weaponized. The Buffalo shooter, among an eclectic belief system that included left-wing redistributionism and environmentalism and a form of white supremacy characteristic of the alt-right, embraced what is known as the Great Replacement Theory, a demographic conspiracy theory that's pretty prominent in some alt-right and what are called racial realist or, more realistically, white supremacist circles. But this theory is actually akin to some more mainstream demographic theories that people have believed for quite some time, including the emerging democratic majority thesis, which is often repeated ad nauseum by Democrats every time they win an election or lose an election. Underlying both of these is the premise that a tide of new immigrants is going to erode the country's white majority, leading to a permanent majority for progressivism, or socialism, depending on how strongly you feel about the subject. There's only one problem with this demographic fable, embraced in a more hopeful turn by the left and a sometimes apocalyptic tone by the alt-right. There's not actually that much evidence to support it. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider, and you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte, or in the Facebook and Instagram feeds of the Robertson School. I would also like to caveat this by saying that I'm not a professional demographer, though I do sometimes play one on podcasts. Lighthearted note aside, we are coming together and I'm doing this podcast in light of a disturbing event, which is a mass shooting that occurred in Western New York. This is particularly disturbing because the shooting occurred at a Topps Market, which is one of the places that I shopped at when I was a kid. I don't exactly know where this one is because we lived in the suburbs outside of Buffalo, but if you're from Western New York, you know Topps, probably know the area where this happened. I have family and friends that still live in Western New York, so it's it's kind of an issue that's geographically near. And there have been a lot of comments about the shooting and responsibility for it and all kinds of things like that. I don't want to get into that too much today, simply because I feel like most of that conversation is generally unhelpful. Every time there is a mass shooting that occurs in the United States, we tend to want to find an easy policy answer that will solve the problem. Whether that is gun control, First Amendment, speech code, regulation, mental health, etc. You can't solve sin through policy. You can do things to make certain types of sin more difficult. We can debate how efficacious those things would or would not be in any given circumstance. But anybody who immediately after a tragedy is tweeting about how their particular policy thing that they've wanted forever will solve the problem 
is essentially trying to capitalize on a tragedy for their long-standing political aims that have nothing to do with it. They're essentially capitalizing on the blood that's just been spilled. I, I think that conversation is like not helpful, and I don't necessarily want to take part in it. I don't think we need another fruitless conversation on whether an assault weapons ban would have prevented mass shootings or not. You probably already have opinions on that, and there's not much that we can say in this podcast that's going to convince you one way or the other. You're probably wrong. Just kidding, because I know you all probably don't agree with each other, but you you need to at least be open to the possibility that you're wrong on that. And particularly if you think that there's, again, an easy policy switch that you can flip that will make bad things go away. That generally isn't how public policy works. There is a lot less that you can do to prevent tragedies than you think. When we talk about conspiracy theories, what attracts people to a conspiracy theory is the idea that there are just a couple of inputs that are causing complex problems in their life. And that if you just fix those, these few things, right, these few bad actors, you kill the Illuminati or the lizard people or, you know, the people with the space lasers or the Rothschilds or the Bilderbergers or the, or the New World Order, whoever, right, you get rid of those few people and then all the problems will go away. And this is actually, in some, play, in some ways, a comforting way of thinking because it, expl- it, it, it makes it assume Right? It gives you the impression that bad things happen because bad people are making bad things happen. And if you just got rid of the bad people, the bad things wouldn't happen anymore. This is actually a comforting explanation of reality. That doesn't make it true. That doesn't mean that in any way, shape, or form, you can just snap your fingers, get rid of a couple people, make a couple of policy changes, and then have utopia. It's exactly the kind of magical thinking that conservatism by definition is meant to push back against there's not a magic bullet there's not a pop-tart answer right there's not a a simple policy change that you can do that's going to solve whatever problem you're exercised about at any given moment and i bring up the conspiracy theories because this guy who did the mass shooting seems to have been mentally unbalanced You know, there is probably a mental health angle to it, but also was motivated by some conspiratorial thinking. Uh, Some very fringe stuff that's out there in the dark corners of the internet. And this conspiracy thinking is itself something that would be very attractive to somebody who is, you know, from a a background where you're, you're looking at the advantages that your parents had and you don't have them. Where you're looking at a horrible time that was very psychologically damaging of the, of the COVID pandemic, the, the fear of the pandemic itself, and then the damage of the lockdowns, especially on teenagers, right? When you're locking people down at a formative period of their life and you're cutting them off from social interaction, but giving them free access to the internet, and somehow you're surprised that a bunch of them went crazy. And I'm not saying lockdowns are right or wrong. I'm just saying every policy choice that you make has negative consequences, many of which are unintended, most of which are unintended. You can do something with the best intentions in the world, and it's going to cause unintended policy consequences that are not the thing that you wanted, but that could be horrendous. And you have to live with that, both as a voter, but more particularly as the person who's making those policy choices. There's no free lunch and there's no perfect answer. So you can think the lockdown was totally justified, but you still need to acknowledge the fact that it probably drove a not insignificant percentage of teenagers crazy. For people who are already subject to 
insecurity and vulnerability and social isolation. You socially isolated them and then there was complete unfettered access to the internet. And we wonder why politics has been more insane, more polarized, more everything over the past couple of years. That's a recipe for that type of thing. So conspiracy theories and this conspiracy thing is in the air, right? We've got a case of the crazies and this is part of this. But underlying all of these things where you feel like there's something wrong in the world and then you look for a simple cause. Bad people have done bad things that have caused these these things to happen. And the particular conspiracy theory that this young man gravitated toward, side note, I feel like an old, an old person every time I say the words young man, but we're talking about someone who's just post-adolescent here, was a demographic conspiracy theory. And it's the myth of the, what's called the Great Replacement. There is a, a somewhat more sane and a much more insane version of this theory. The somewhat more sane version is the emerging democratic majority thesis that was advanced by John Judas and Roy Teixeira in their 2004 book. And this theory is that Democrats will gain a permanent majority because of the growth of non-white segments of the population, particularly the influx of Hispanics. The idea being that we're heading toward being a majority-minority country. Okay, that's the, that's the phrase that's used. And that when that happens, this will mean a permanent majority for the Democrats. Because, of course, the underlying assumption being that Republicans are incapable of appealing to people who are not white. This is a very traditional Democratic stereotype into which Republicans have been all too happy to play in the past, not because they're not trying to appeal to minorities, but because their minority outreach has been really bad. Like translating pamphlets about low taxes and deregulation into Spanish and refusing to talk about the cultural issues that where we actually agree with Hispanics. I know I've talked about this before. I digress. I digress. That's the less insane version of the theory. Um, and it's been expounded by people like Julian Castro, by basically every non-white prominent dom- uh, Democratic talking head and several prominent white Democratic talking heads over the past you know decade and a half. Most Republicans traditionally have ignored this. Some have used it as justification for their opposition to mass immigration. And a couple of people who are white nationalists have taken it very seriously and have taken this not so much as a triumphalist bit of question begging on the part of white progressives about how demography is going to save them from the, the fact that the white working class now hates them and have rather seen it as a result of a nefarious conspiracy, probably somehow connected to the Jews because it's always somehow connected to the Jews. It is very hard in the modern world to have a conspiracy. Pretty much the only conspiracy theories that I know of that don't involve the Jews are the, are the ones about the aliens. And it's because you have a what, what Thomas Sowell calls a, a middleman minority, a minority group that is, is successful based on accumulating intellectual capital that you know, is, is closely knit, tightly knit, close knit group in, in a lot of ways, has, has very strong social, uh, social networks. And that group is almost always the target of conspiracy theories. One of my favorite examples of this is how several uh, prominent Islamist thinkers associated with the movement called Dewan Dakhwan Islami Indonesia, DDII, used to argue that Chinese Catholic businessmen men in Indonesia were part of the global Zionist conspiracy. Well, why 
uh, because there was a think tank that was associated with Indonesian intelligence that had a lot of Chinese Catholics working at it, but also because Chinese Catholics were a middleman minority in Indonesia, and the Jews are sort of associated with being a global middleman. And so they must all be part of the same conspiracy because that's how conspiracy theory thinking works. You take things that are unrelated and use them to create oversimplified explanations of reality. So of course, somehow the Jews must be involved in this great replacement. Um, why exactly Jews would want to do that has never been clearly explained to me by any of the people who expound this. And by the way, when you saw at Charlottesville, the people chanting, the Jews will not replace us, this is what they meant. It's, it's that great replacement myth. The motivations of this are obscure, particularly given that there is, I mean, there are parts of Latin America where anti-Semitism is pretty low. Those are the parts that are Protestant, Pentecostal. There's a, a long tradition of Catholic anti-Semitism that's very traditional. If you look at some of the more extreme far-left groups that are, you know, claiming to be speaking for, for example, the Chicano community, I remember actually at one point reading a newspaper that was produced by one of these groups. Uh, it was called La Voz de Aslan, and they were pretty freaking anti-Semitic, okay? So why you would replace a a less anti-Semitic group with a more anti-Semitic group as part of a Jewish conspiracy makes absolutely no sense to me. But there you have it. Somehow the Jews are involved. There's a lot about this, that aspect of it that just absolutely doesn't make sense. You know, particularly given that, like, if we're going to be realistic here, if we're going to be honest and, and talk about things that oftentimes we're not allowed to talk about, there's a rising tide of anti-Semitism in non-white, particularly African-American communities. And so... That is not something that's often discussed and would sort of militate against this whole thing. Plus, plus, one of the things that we know is happening right now with CRT and intersectionality is that anti-Semitism is getting more support through the, the whole intersectional thing because Jews have been, have been, it has been decided by the intersectional left that Jews are now white people. And they are now associated with colonialism because Israel bad, Palestinians good, and the Palestinians are brown people and the Jews are white people. You see like some really weird overlaps between some of the extreme white nationalist people and some of the intersectional people. And they tend to overlap in the fact that they both don't like Jews and they associate Jews with the other group. Okay, so there's, there's some very odd cross currents. Let's just put it that way between the intersectional left and the alt-right, where Jews are concerned. So that's the insane part of the conspiracy theory, okay? That is, is where things go totally nuts. And obviously, I think if you think about it and you know something, not a lot, mind you, but something about contemporary anti-Semitism and slightly more about the, the complexities of Jewish politics and you know these sort of intra-Jewish disputes about politics that are emerging in the United States, the idea that there's like this unified block of Jews that are part of this, this conspiracy really doesn't make any sense, any sense at all. I recognize the fact that probably most people that are getting their political news from 4chan are not tracking things at that level. And, and, and so, you know, dunking on the insane theory, while it is useful to just sort of kind of explain how there's anti-Semitism in this quarter, and it's actually not as dissimilar from the anti-Semitism on the left as you might think, 
once you get toward the crazy fever swamps on the left and the crazy fever swamps on the right, they sort of come together in the point of having these weird views about Jews, which tends to actually be a pretty good canary in the coal mine. If you're looking for a crazy person and they start talking about how everything is the fault of the Jews, then you found them. You found the crazy person. And if they don't start bringing the Jews into it, then they might still be crazy, but it doesn't guarantee that they're not. But then, then at, at least they may have invented a conspiracy theory that is new. So having dispatched with the insane version of this theory, let's talk about the more sane version. After all, if it is in fact true that demographic shifts mean a permanent democratic majority that is going to be inevitable and inescapable, then it would seem like the rational response for conservatives would be to oppose immigration tooth and nail. Now, I actually think that one's views on immigration should have nothing to do with one's perspectives about future demographic destiny, because demography is not destiny. So you should not read this podcast as saying have a pro-immigration or an anti-immigration stance. I think that there are valid reasons you can make arguments on either side, and you can go back and listen to my podcast here previously where I told you what my preferred immigration policy is, which happens to be the preferred immigration policy of the majority of the American people. That being said, let's just look at a couple of reasons why this emerging democratic majority thesis or the, the, the idea of a sort of a, a great replacement is nonsensical. The first point is that even the people who created the emerging democratic majority thesis are now pretty much not supporting that idea anymore. Rui Teixeira, who was the, one of the original authors of that, recently wrote a cover story in National Review, which basically said, yeah, so about that emerging democratic majority thing, ah, might have been wrong with that. And the reason that he says that he might have been wrong is, is the degree to which white progressives and their ideology have essentially taken over the Democratic Party and are irritating the heck out of everyone else. He talks about in that story, and I highly recommend that you read it, because it's a guy who's of the left writing in a conservative magazine. He talks about just how toxified the Democratic brand is with the voters that were supposed to comprise the emerging Democratic majority. Okay, so just in the short term, the emerging Democratic majority seems to have been more of an emerging new block of swing voters. And it's ironic because the Democrats, and I think Teixeira to a certain extent is, is possibly guilty of this as well, misread their own coalition and misread where the fault lines in their coalition were. In other words, the white element of the Democratic Party is much more interested in social issues than they are in economic issues. They, you know they're much more focused on on sort of sort of the woke stuff on the lgbtq aggressively pushing for that kind of stuff on support for unrestricted abortion until the moment of birth etc cetera, etc cetera, right that's that's where the hardcore most active white element of their base is turns out most of the non-white voters in the democratic fold are moderate to conservative on social issues and are really more interested in the economic aspect they're more skeptical of deregulation. They're more supportive of a stronger central government. They're more open to certain populist economic elements, and they're supportive of large chunks of the welfare state. This doesn't mean that they're all going to start voting Republican tomorrow, but it does mean that the more Democrats emphasize social issues and de-emphasize economic issues, the more out of step they are with that element of their base. And if everybody's not, you know, if nobody's talking about economic issues and you're fighting an election on social issues, guess what? 
you're going to start seeing more Hispanic voters drifting into the Republican column. We saw that in 2004 when the election was about the war in Iraq and gay marriage. On foreign policy and on social issues, Hispanics were winnable voters. Republicans did better. 2020, the issues were about COVID lockdowns, but also we had some social issues emerging because of the BLM stuff, because of those protests that were associated with that because of defund the police and also because the the Trump administration and, and Trump in their messaging really went after some of the social issues in the Hispanic area, particularly the pro-life issue. Trump had the virtue of not growing up in the you know consultant industrial complex and, and, and like he didn't know that you're not supposed to do certain things, right? Like talk about abortion as a Republican. So he talked about abortion as a Republican and uh, he won several Hispanic areas that he wasn't expected to win and did better across the board. Funny thing. So it turns out that that permanent democratic majority isn't necessarily permanent. Okay. So that's a short term political reason why, especially right now, we should be looking with deep skepticism at this emerging democratic majority thesis, because it looks like Republicans really have a shot at being competitive among Hispanic Latino voters. Oh, by the way, when you arbitrarily decide that you're going to put a linguistically inappropriate X at the end of the Latino Latina construction because you want to privilege the LGBTQ agenda over the way other people's language works. That's also a thing that's probably not going to play well with your emerging majority. So yeah, that's just, again, I know I sometimes like to dunk on certain things a lot and that would be one that's really dumb. And so, you know, just have to drive that nail a little bit deeper into the coffin. But let's talk about the reason why you're here and not listening to another politics, and that is the deep nerdery of it all. The deep demographic stuff. Demography is not destiny, but it does provide certain constraints. And so are we looking at a situation in which the country is going to be majority-minority, majority-non-white by 2030, 40, 50, or whatever? And the answer is, depends on how you define certain things. The thing about whiteness in America from a demographic perspective is that it's a moving target, okay? In 1900, Italians were not considered white. In the 1750s, Germans from the Rhineland Palatinate were not considered really white. So how are we going to look at, let's just say, the descendants of Mexican immigrants in 2050? Are they going to be considered quote-unquote white? It's almost impossible to answer that question with any degree of accuracy because it is a moving target. So that's the first point. We just don't know what is going to be considered quote-unquote white and what is going to be considered quote-unquote non-white in the future. It's it's really a moving target and it's, it's a construct, right? It's a social construct. And so we really don't know how that's going to be viewed at any given time. So that's point number one. Point number two, the idea that there is a monolithic demographic group called Hispanic slash Latino is not true. We've known for a long time that, for example, a Puerto Rican from New York City and a Cuban from Miami are not going to vote the same way. But it's been taken for granted by demographers and sort of people looking at politics that Miami Cubans were sort of an outlier and the typical Puerto Rican voter from New York City was more typical of the quote-unquote Latino majority. But actually, as it turns out, Mexicans don't necessarily vote the way Puerto Ricans do. And Mexicans in Texas and Mexicans in California also don't vote the same. In fact, they tend to vote in ways that are closer to 
their white neighbors than would be closer to Mexicans from a different state. In other words, there's a degree of political assimilation that's happening in that demographic group. And that's partially probably because there are longstanding Tejano and California communities that have existed there for a while um, that are just sort of part of the social fabric. And so you're going to see a bit of mutual assimilation, yes, a little bit of cultural shift, but a lot of the assimilation is going to be politically assimilating to the environment around. So Mexicans, in that sense, are swing voters. And that's not even getting into Dominicans, Venezuelans, Haitians, other other Caribbeans and South South American groups, people from Guatemala. I mean, when you're talking about Central American, the question are you Catholic or are you Pentecostal is a huge one. Guatemala, for example, 70% Pentecostal. Numbers are going to be lower in some other Central American countries. I suspect that somebody who's Pentecostal is going to vote differently than someone who's a Catholic that was you know, influenced by liberation theology, or someone who's a Catholic that is influenced by more traditional and conservative strands of Roman Catholic thought in Latin America. So it's a very complex demographic group. African-Americans tend to vote with more unanimity unanimity, and more as a group, as a block, than Hispanics have voted traditionally. And that's even true traditionally in the United States today. There's no reason to think that Hispanic-Latino voting patterns are going to become less complex over time. In other words, as you see different levels of, of uh, assimilation, you're more likely to see the type of political diversity increase rather than decrease. That just tends to be the way that things have gone with past waves of immigration. And there's actually nothing in the Hispanic story, notwithstanding some of the people, you know, explanations that people have given for why this one is totally going to be different. There's actually not that evident, that much evidence that it actually is going to be that different. So that's the next point. The third point about the emerging majority minority thing is that a lot of these straight line projections even straight line projections, if all things are kept equal in terms of the immigration policies of the country, make an assumption that you're going to have continuous rates of immigration at their current level from Latin America. And this is flatly impossible. The reason for that being that Latin American demographics have changed. At one point, Mexico had, a, had very high birth rates, and now their birth rates, are, while above replacement, aren't that much above replacement. Latin America is not one of the areas that's still growing in terms of demographics. It's not shrinking as rapidly as Europe. It's not shrinking as rapidly as the United States. And to a certain extent, where you have poorer countries that you can walk to from richer countries, there's going to be a certain amount of, of immigration. But if Mexicans continue to immigrate at the rates that they did in the 90s and 2000s, Mexico would to steal a phrase from the late Ben Wattenberg, who really is a professional demographer, eventually run out of Mexicans. So to a certain extent, like the demographics just don't support the idea that you can have a constant flow of migration from Latin America. We may have already peaked numbers on this vary, but for example, in the mid, I think it was 2017 or 2018, I was looking at demographics that said that there are now more people immigrating from Asia than from Latin America. And of course, when you're talking about Asian political participation, which could be a very fast growing group, there's even more diversity because we lump together Asia cultures like, look, at least when you're talking about Hispanic Latino, you're talking about people who speak languages that are in the same language family. There's really no linguistic tie, as far as I know, between Hindi and Cantonese, just to pick two examples. I, I, I really, I'm not a linguist. 
So maybe there's something that I'm missing, but yeah, not, not that linguistically or culturally close. When we say Asian, we're talking about an immense, immense amount of diversity. So we would need to break that down a lot to actually get you any kind of clear sense of like who's coming, where they're coming from, and what the various different demographic aspects of that mean. And by the way, which part of Asia also matters? Because again, looking at the demographics of other countries, East Asia is not headed for a demographic excess. They are, their demography is going to be shrinking. Their populations are going to be going down, extremely far down in places like South Korea and Japan. But China's on a trajectory where demographically they have peaked in all likelihood, unless they are suddenly able to get a massive influx of babies, which shouldn't affect immigration for the next mm, two decades or so. Regardless, I don't see China sending us a massive wave of immigration anytime soon. So you're talking about places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And if you're someone from India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh, it's actually a lot easier to immigrate to Canada or the UK because of the whole Commonwealth thing. So there's, there's a lot of reciprocity and visas and things like that. So again, I'm not exactly sure where this massive wave of immigration that people are projecting that's going to continue for forever is coming from. We may actually be in a position eventually where we are in competition with other Western countries for immigrants, even as the possible pool of migrants is shrinking. And the reason I say that is because you've got aging populations who are going to need to pay for expensive entitlements. You have essentially three ways that you can do that. You can raise taxes a lot. You can cut benefits a lot. Or you can find a lot of new people who can come in, work, pay taxes, and keep the system afloat. You're probably going to need to do a combination of all three, but this entitlement crisis that's hitting in the United States, this crisis of the welfare state, is also going to hit in Europe. So one of the things that George Friedman, who's a future caster, predicts is that by the end of the 2020s, we could actually be looking at Western countries competing for immigrants. That's a very different mindset. And if he's even close to right, then we're not even thinking about migration, demography, etc. in the right kind of framework. Bottom line is... I don't see this great replacement or emerging democratic majority or any of this stuff as actually demographically viable in any meaningful sense. Yes, we are likely to see continued levels of, of immigration, and unless there's a significant policy change, it's probably going to be a high level. But there's going to be increasingly diverse source countries. There's going to be increasingly diverse political participation. The idea of a white-black binary is what's going to make less sense. And so the, what's more likely to happen is different groups assimilating to lesser or greater degrees to the dominant political culture. Now, that dominant political culture right now is divided between two groups of white people that really don't like each other, white conservatives and white progressives. So it's not entirely clear to me which political culture will get the most assimilation from immigrants. And it's very possible that the progressives will beat out the conservatives in that sense. But it certainly is not destiny. And there's no reason it has to happen that way. Possibly you will actually see a, sim a situation where red states have more jobs available. They have more, they're sort of more business friendly. It's easier to start a business and be an entrepreneur there. And so if you're an immigrant and you are looking to start over, maybe you're more likely to move to a red state. One possible 
area of political entrepreneurship that someone could look at is expediting visas for those who want to come to economically depressed areas in the, in the Rust Belt and start businesses that will provide jobs, thereby creating new jobs for native-born citizens. Thus, you have increased immigration, you've brought people in, and you've brought jobs back to those areas. Well, those people are probably more likely to assimilate to the political culture in areas where they find themselves, especially if you're a very entrepreneurial person, you're an immigrant who's left your home, and you're not necessarily surrounded by a lot of people who are like you. You're going to assimilate to a certain extent to the culture that you find your, in which you find yourself. So how do we, as conservatives, make sure that all of the waves of immigrants that are coming in don't become lockstep voters for the worst impulses of the white progressives, well, make your state an attractive place that people want to come from other countries to live and settle and, you know, move and go to work and go to church, and then they will start voting like the people that are already there. There's a pretty long-attested history of that happening in the United States. In other words, we just have to have enough self-confidence that our way of life is, is good that we can assimilate people as they're coming to live and work in the areas where the red state model is dominant. And I am actually that confident. I think that that is likely to be the outcome. And remember, you don't have to win a massive supermajority of these immigrants as they're coming in. Immigrants in the first wave, yes, do tend to vote for policies that are, are more sort of government expanding, although they're also very socially traditionalist. Right? And there are ways that you can, as a smart conservative politician, work that really hard, show up to the naturalization ceremonies, give them pamphlets that explain to them how America works, you know, have interlocutors who can explain to them these things in their own native language. And by the way, if you're more comfortable, you're, you're wanting to make sure that people learn English, I don't know, maybe offer some ESL classes to, to people as they're coming in. These are things that, you know, functioning local political parties you know, that, a, that a, a smart local GOP could do, could very easily do within the scope of normal political activity. Okay. This is politics 101, right? And so doing a little bit of that politics 101 ensures that the worst doesn't happen if that's what you're concerned about. It's much more realistic than a lot of the cockamamie ideas that are, are put forward. And so, you know, if you want to beat the Democrats at this game, all you got to do is outwork them. And I, I believe that is certainly possible. And also, don't be crazy, right? Because again, people are coming from very traditional societies. What the Democrats are selling on social issues is not going to be very attractive. And even if you don't get them, there's a pretty good chance you'll have a, a shot at their kids. So again, this is not the council of despair for conservatives. It's not a reason for conservatives to be despairing or a reason for the left to be triumphant. And it certainly is not a reason for us to do insane things, right? It's not a reason to embrace ridiculous conspiracy theories and then go take violent action to do something about it. Because it's not true. There is no such thing as demographic destiny, and there's certainly no such thing as a permanent majority in politics. If there's any constant in politics, it's change and realignment. And that is what we are probably looking at. Yes, there will be changes. Yes, there will be realignments. Yes, there will be shifts in the Republican Party and the conservative coalition. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be this permanent majority for progressivism, socialism, the welfare state, or any of those other things. It just means that conservatives are going to have to reach out to new groups of people, but there are going to be groups of people that we find that align with us on things that we believe. It might mean emphasizing some issues and de-emphasizing others. 
And the last person, by the way, that you should actually trust in terms of figuring that out are the same consultants who have been running campaigns that have consistently lost and have consistently failed to make any inroads into these minority communities. Insanity, the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this a little bit better and more effectively. But certainly the answer is not you know, this type of violent terrorism. It's not the alt-right. It's not some sort of white supremacy. Because I can tell you right now that the one thing that is guaranteed to make the permanent democratic majority thing true is embracing a lot of this white nationalist and white nationalist adjacent nonsense. We can win this by being conservatives. We can win this by sticking to traditional values. We can win this by embracing, you know, some of the policies even that came out from the past administration. But we don't, we don't need to go into this sort of alt-right or white nationalist or some of these other crazy types of, of fever swamps. The one thing that the alt-right and the white progressives agree on is that the Republican Party and the conservative movement are and always ought to be exclusively limited to white people. And all we have to do to beat them to beat both of those groups that are cancers on the body politic, potentially, or just wrong in the other case, and obviously the alt-right is the cancer and the progressives are just wrong. But all we have to do is prove them wrong. And it's not probably going to be as hard as you think. That's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook through Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. And on Facebook and Instagram at the feeds of the Robertson School of Government. And I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. I know it's motivated by a tragic series of events. But given that this kind of stuff is in the air, I felt like it it was necessary for us to do a deep dive on some of the ideas behind it. Rather than just another meaningless conversation about internet hate speech or gun violence or something like that. And hopefully this conversation has given you more ammunition to actually understand the issue and understand the demographic doomsaying and and projections and why they're wrong. So for Blind Politics, once again, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. (laughs) 